welcome to Technology and Security. TS is a podcast exploring the intersections of emerging technologies and national security. I'm your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Technology Program at the United States Studies Center, and we're based in the University of Sydney. My guest today is Johanna Weaver. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Johanna is the founding director of the Tech Policy Design Center and professor of practice at the Australian National University. Before joining ANU, she was Australia's independent expert and lead negotiator on cyber issues at the United Nations. Johanna also led the cyber affairs branch at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, is on the global advisory board on digital threats during conflict at the International Committee of the Red Cross, and a former commercial litigator. She also hosts the Tech Mirror podcast. We're thrilled to have you join the podcast, Johanna, and bring one of our conversations into the world. We're coming to you today from the lands of the Ngunnawal people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, both here and wherever you're listening. We acknowledge their continuing connection to land, sea and community and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So 2023 has been a huge year for emerging technologies and technology policy. We'll dive into the detail in a bit, but can you, in a nutshell, give us your highlights? Look, I think for me, there's three real trends that come out of 2023. One was the start of the year, really the end of 2022, um, when when there was increasing geopolitical tensions. So we saw the CHIPS Act, the export controls, a real increase in the way uh, that the US was responding to China's rise in this space uh, and uh, increasing decoupling at the high end of of the technology space. The second trend that really stands out to me um, is one that I call the changing zeitgeist, just because I love the word zeitgeist. (laughs) Um, But really, this is you see this across all different types of tech policy. So whether you're looking at cybersecurity or privacy or increasingly now the conversation around AI regulation, it's this shift to say it's actually not up to the individual uh, to look after their own privacy or um, to manage cybersecurity. We need to place more of a burden on the companies. And we've really seen that um, the US led that in the cybersecurity space earlier this year. We've seen that in our own cybersecurity strategy that just came out. And then if you look at the Bletchley Park Declaration, um, that's all about, okay, you know, we have to stop letting the tech companies mark their own homework, which is sort of the phrasing of it. Um, And then, of course, the third biggest trend is around the emergence of artificial intelligence. And the fact that this is a conversation that's happening on the front page of the newspapers is very exciting to me um, and one that, you know, is pretty obvious in terms of um, the key highlights out of 2023. I think you'll be shocked to know that we are among a small few that are excited by this being on the front page of the newspapers. Well, I think there are lots of people that are terrified by it and a small amount of people that are really excited by it. What I'd like to see is a little bit more of a nuanced conversation in the newspapers so we get more people excited about the opportunity of artificial intelligence because it is enormous opportunity. The productivity benefits that can come from this, from your personal satisfaction, from, you know, personalised education, these types of things, there's amazing opportunity. Um, And so hopefully we'll get some more balance to the conversation in 2024 um, whilst also being really realistic about the risks as well. You have a passion for imagining how governance can reshape technological futures, and I hear that coming out a little there. (laughs) Talk me through how you got to this point and why it's so important for you. So, you know, I describe myself as a reformed commercial litigator. I bought back my soul uh, by joining the public service and becoming uh, a diplomat uh, and then actually left the diplomatic service um, and uh, retrained in what I then called a specialisation in strategic cyber policy. 
Um, and then uh, worked, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, um, back in foreign affairs. I got offered a job that I couldn't say no to, um, establishing Australia's cyber diplomacy practice. And it really emphasised to me how much every single country, every single company and every single individual is genuinely struggling with how to respond and to address this vast step change in the technology that we're using. And it is a design challenge. It involves a lot of creativity uh, in being able to do it at speed and scale. And that's why my centre is called the Tech Policy Design Centre, because we really wanted to emphasise that we're not here to admire the problem, we're here to co-design solutions and also that element of creativity. We can't keep applying the same 20th century solutions to 21st century problems. So it's really about imagining incredible technology futures but also agitating for the change to make them happen. Exactly, and recognising that at least for the moment, and we'll see what happens with generative AI, but humans create technology. And we can make technology differently. We can make technology um, that builds in privacy and security, um, that respects our human rights. Um, But we have to actually demand that and we have to change the incentive structures for the way that technology is produced because at the moment, technology rewards the first to market. This is not about stopping innovation. It's actually about enabling good innovation. And, you know, I do get very passionate about that because I do think technology will be core to solving the solutions of the biggest challenges of our time. But it has to be good technology, not just technology. Absolutely. Let's talk about cybersecurity. The Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity, Claire O'Neill, released the 2023 to 2030 Australian Cybersecurity Strategy in November. What are your thoughts? Look, overall, I was very impressed with the strategy. There's a lot of concepts and ideas that those of us who've been working in the field have been talking about and calling for for many years, but a government hasn't been brave enough or resourced enough or had the demand from the voters to take action um, to actually put it in paper. So, you know, I think the strategy is exceptionally ambitious and I very much welcome that. What I particularly like about it is its breadth. So it is providing solutions for everyone from personal cybersecurity. Um, there's commitments for small businesses, there's commitments for critical infrastructure, and there's commitments for uh, for large businesses. And also, importantly, that government needs to get its own house in order. Normally, I would say the devil is in the detail. Uh, in this case, I would say the devil really is going to be in implementation um, because there's a lot uh, there's a lot to crack on with. And on that note, how do you see the balance of responsibility and the strategy across government? Look, I looked at that very closely. As a former public servant who's been involved in uh, sort of the down and dirty of who leads on what issue, Um, and and to be honest, there are times when an issue like cybersecurity is hot and sexy and everybody wants to own it. And then something bad will happen and nobody wants to own it and it's everybody else's fault. So I think what is particularly interesting about the strategy um, is very clear allocation of leads. I think if anyone's really nerdy and wants to uh, get into it, I highly recommend you have a look at the action plan, in particular, the areas in the action plan where there's two lead agency that clearly indicates uh, that there is um, some bureaucracy um, jostling uh, still going on. So clear delineation of roles is important, but you need to have clear coordination, clear accountability and reporting and tracking of all of these initiatives. And it's actually not just relevant to uh, the initiatives announced in the action plan under the strategy, but also across other areas. 
for example, the cybersecurity strategy commits to reviewing uh, data retention uh, requirements. That's also a commitment that the government has agreed to under the privacy review. So, you know, we need to make sure that we've got the coordination across portfolios, across initiatives um, as well. Um, in a piece my colleague Tom Barrett and I published, we highlighted the key role of industry in this strategy, mm. which you've mentioned. They do some heavy lifting in several areas. Um, how do you think our coordination between government and industry is placed at the moment to achieve this? So we've come a long way in a short period of time. Um, I think that's in no small part uh, due to the standing up of the Critical Infrastructure Centre within the Department of Home Affairs. Uh, Minister O'Neill has uh, conducted a lot of engagement as part of uh, the drafting of the strategy. The question though is, can you harness that for impact and harness that to actually deliver a lot of these initiatives that are in the strategy? So there's quite a lot uh, that is foreshadowed that we will do this in consultation with industry. Um, things that are going to probably be quite controversial. So uh, things like the no fault, no liability uh, ransomware reporting uh, requirement that's being uh, introduced. So, you know, there, the, it will be interesting to see um, when the rubber really hits the road uh, on implementation, how, uh, those, how well those relationships are able to be maintained. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we've seen the significant um, public-private partnership announced with Microsoft's ASD CyberShield um, to help improve threat detection and protection. How important do you think these public partnerships will be in improving cyber resilience? And are there any risks we should be attuned to? What was really interesting to me was the $600 million that was announced with the strategy. Put that in the context of the Red Spice package, which is like $9.9 billion or something uh, over a period of 10 years. Um, and I actually think a lot of the Red Spice money is going to be used to develop the strategy. And that's pretty common in government, right? Um, so, you know, I think they are very much linked uh, in terms of, of the partnerships. I actually think the biggest risk is capture. Um, so the biggest risk is that you have these large companies who are able to secure these contracts, whether it is to secure critical infrastructure or to provide support to government, and that they become the only voices in the room that are listened to. That's the biggest risk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you kind of pointed out at the beginning, and I talk about in my forthcoming book, that the geopolitical contest of technology is really picking up pace in almost every sector. And the relative power of private enterprise to governments is, is really shifting. The Tech Policy Design Centre published a policy paper earlier this year on ransomware. Um, given its headline assessment was to strongly discourage businesses and individuals from paying ransoms, how do you feel about the way the matter was addressed in the cybersecurity strategy? Yeah, look, I think the cybersecurity strategy um, has taken a really uh, good approach uh, on this. We do need to be discouraging um, people from paying those ransoms and providing them with support. So I think the no fault, no liability uh, disclosure scheme, that's in line with one of the recommendations. Uh, in our report and would like to see that expanded over other jurisdictions as well. You know, if you can have that expanded, for example, in the quad countries, then you're actually going to start to get some really interesting data and information about the way that the ransomware business model is operating. The other thing I really like in the cybersecurity strategy, which is linked um, to some of the findings uh, in that ransomware report, is 
the establishment of, of support for small and medium-sized um, enterprises. The average cost for a small business um, f- uh, recovering from a ransomware attack is about $49,000. Most small businesses don't recover from that, right? So the strategy has um, put in place support for before, during and after um, the cybersecurity uh, incidents for small and medium-sized businesses. Now, my biggest question around that is how are we going to you know, get the people in place to be able to provide that support? and guidance and I know this is something that you've written on and are very passionate about as well Mia. It's all well and good that we make these announcements. Do we actually have the the bums on seats to be able to staff them? You really raised something there that I think is incredibly admirable in the strategy and that is as you said the breadth so it looks at you know small to medium enterprise which is the the largest group of Mm. enterprise in Mm. Australia as well as you know the big end of town who actually are often the providers of cyber security um, services but also the individuals and I think that's a really key point that we haven't seen everywhere but does align really well with the US strategy of placing, um, you know, the onus of protection on government and the largest businesses that actually provide services. So I, I also agree. I think that's incredibly valuable. You recently wrote that bombs or bites, missiles or malware, international humanitarian law applies. Can you take us through what has happened at the International Criminal Court that led you to make this statement? This is sort of the culmination of three things that happened in, in relatively uh, quick succession, building off the work that I did uh, when I was Australia's chief negotiator uh, at the United Nations. And so those negotiations in 2021 culminated with recognition that international humanitarian law applies to state conduct in cyberspace. And this was you know, something that we had agreed back in 2013 that international law applied, but this was the first time that we'd specifically specifically um, called out international humanitarian law as applying. Less than uh, a year later, Russia invades uh, Ukraine and we see uh, cyber operations being used in the context of armed conflict. And, you know, a lot of the negotiations that we did was um, was very closely uh, in partnerships with the Russians and the Chinese. And so when we were in those negotiations, never did I think that we would see cyber operations being used in armed conflict. So international humanitarian law, as I'm sure all your listeners know, only applies during armed conflict. And the uh, prosecutor of the international criminal court has come out and said that they consider uh, the uh, cyber operations to be within their jurisdiction. Um, that basically is foreshadowing that the next round of prosecutions will include include prosecutions uh, for cyber operations conducted in conjunction with kinetic operations uh, which constitute um, war crimes. At the same time um, the International Committee uh, of the Red Cross, um, the board that I was on, had been meeting for two years and we've just released a report And this is essentially, again, something that was initiated pre the Russian invasion of Ukraine, includes uh, a Russian expert, 20 experts from all around the world, and includes a number of recommendations addressing, you know, really topical issues, uh, the increasing way that we see civilians participating in armed conflict from other jurisdictions. So, you know, um, potentially uh, Australian hackers uh, participating in hostilities in Ukraine, but from Australia. You know, what are the implications of that from a legal perspective? We look at the role of industry. You know, we saw industry on the ground in Ukraine having such a significant role. And then finally, um, the third thing that happened uh, which prompted that article 
um, was uh, a blog that was published um, by Tilman Rodenhauser, who's a legal advisor at the ICRC, um, uh, talking about eight rules for hacktivists uh, or for hackers uh, during armed conflict. And that um, came out of one of the recommendations in the ICRC uh, report. Um, and what was extraordinary about that is the response from those hacktivist groups on both sides of the Ukrainian conflict coming out and saying, we will abide by these rules, which is quite extraordinary. Anonymous came out and said, we will uh, abide by these rules. And it may be that the reality out there in some instances still has the appearance of the Wild West, but it's not because of a lack of rules, it's because of a lack of enforcement of those rules. Thank you for such a comprehensive answer on these really significant crimes. So yeah. it's important yeah. to see them investigated. Yeah. I think if I can just add two little bits on that. One is, um, I know people often say, what's the point of these rules if they're broken? But the point of the rules is you've agreed the rules. Russia and China and every country in the world has agreed these rules apply. It means we can now call out when they break the rules. And if you haven't agreed the rules, you can't call it out. And the other thing I'd say is... The conversation has actually expanded. So it used to be um, that there was lots of different siloed conversations that happened. So it was the use of ICTs in the context of international security. Then you had a cyber operations conversation. Then you had a laws conversation. Then you had lethal autonomous weapons. And what we're really seeing coming together uh, is um, looking at these things much more holistically as well, which is really uh, another trend, I would say, from 2023. Yeah, I'd actually agree with you. I I think many players understanding the length and breadth of the technology ecosystem and how it affects Mm. everyone. Um, It's been a real joy to watch as someone who's advocated that for a long time. (laughs) Let's move on to AI. 2023 really has been the year of AI. (laughs) In my tech wrap of 2023, I set out some of the incredible tech developments as well as the many approaches to regulatory reform. We saw consumer technologies like ChatGPT diffuse through society at an incredible rate. We've seen discussion about what what AI is and isn't and witnessed immense hyperbole about what it will mean for society, including the future of humanity. What about AI stood out for you this year? Well, look, I think... Uh, all technology uh, is about the future of humanity. Um, and if we're, not, if we're not putting humans at the centre of technology, then we're getting it wrong. I mean, the focus largely, though, was on the existential risks, um, which, you know, is, a, is one part of a conversation which is an important part of the conversation around artificial intelligence. But I would, would like to see there being more of a conversation about the way Um, not necessarily that the frontier artificial intelligence models and the existential risks that they present, um, but some of the more mainstream artificial intelligence that's already out there in our economies and being used, how that is shaping humanity, um, not just at at the far end of the existential risks. And I think we actually, we need to be addressing both uh, the current uh, risks in terms of discrimination, bias, etc., whilst also those long-term risks. Um, and I, I know a lot of people who work in the field of artificial intelligence don't like this um, phrasing of short-term and long-term because, you know, um, a year ago, ChatGPT was a long-term thing and then all of a sudden it's here. So, you know, these even those um, timeframes are relatively artificial. But by focusing on the harms that are happening now and putting in place the right and well-designed regulatory frameworks to address those, we're also largely giving ourselves the toolkit to be able to respond to those longer-term risks as well, or to those existential risks, if you like, uh, if we want to avoid that phraseology. 
We've seen various efforts to regulate AI globally from the Biden administration's executive order on safe, secure and trustworthy development and use of AI to the EU AI Act and multilateral agreements such as the UK hosted Global AI Safety Summit, the one you referred to earlier, Bletchley Park, uh, and the G7 leaders statement on the Hiroshima AI process. Where do you think Australia sits and how well calibrated do you think our efforts are? Look, I think making an assessment of where Australia sits is actually quite difficult at the moment because we've had uh, the consultation um, that came out um, in the middle of the year asking for submissions on Australia's approach to the regulation of artificial intelligence. There were thousands of responses to that. Um, But we haven't yet seen a lot of feedback. We don't yet have a clear idea of the direction that the government is going to take. After Bletchley Park, um, Minister Husick um, put down a number of markers saying that he thought the Australian legal environment um, and existing laws were largely sufficient, that we did need to um, be having some additional measures that needed to be put in place. But we're yet to have any real indication of what that is going to be. So I think it's still a bit of a waiting game uh, for us. Uh, and you know there are pros and cons of each of the different models um, that are out there. Something you mentioned there, uh, the thousands of submissions, uh, highlights a conversation I had on the podcast with Hamish Hansford from Department of Home Affairs about the role of um, Australians and companies, but they were finding in the security of critical infrastructure uh, consultations a huge growth in the number of public submissions. And and it's being replicated across many industries and many reviews now where we're seeing thousands of submissions for things. And on the one hand, I think it's wonderful. I love that people are more engaged in democratic deliberations. But on the other hand, it's actually posing some really challenging mm-hmm. um you know, how, how do government agencies actually respond to and analyse in, in an effective time frame? It's yeah. a really interesting topic and maybe one technology can help with. Yeah, and I just think, I, th- I think this is a perfect example of applying 20th century solutions to 21st century problems, right? Well, first of all, I guess I have a question about how many of them are actually even read properly. Um, and so a lot of work and effort goes into uh, producing those submissions. Um, how can we design a system that allows those inputs to be received um, more effectively and more efficiently? And there's lots of interesting models, um, either in Ireland or in Taiwan, of participatory um, democracy that could be slightly adopted um, to allow for participatory consultation. So this is not without precedent. Um, and, you know, I, I, I hope that we start to see an evolution uh, in that model uh, as well. It's something we've, we've proposed to the centre in a report uh, called Cultivating Coordination. Do you see any tensions between democracies and regulation of fast-moving and impactful technologies? Or do you see that we can continue to regulate the way that we have been but applying these first principles? I think... Um, If we apply well-designed regulations, uh, there isn't and shouldn't be a tension. Although what we have seen uh, in a number of emerging technology fields is that regulation uh, is pushed through uh, that doesn't necessarily have standard democratic protections built in. So this is your ability to uh, appeal a decision, your ability to seek review of a decision, somebody to be uh, watching uh, the person that, you know, we, in this, the national security field, we call it watching the watcher. And so we as democracies need to make sure that we're building in those democratic protections um, that are at the core of our societies. We can't take it for granted. We're going to go to a segment now about alliances. 
what is the role of alliance building in technology policy? Look, I think alliances have a really important role in terms of, you know, Australia being um, a middle power, relatively small economy uh, and and predominantly a tech adopter. So the building of alliances is important both from a research and design perspective, um, but also from the perspective of um, influencing governance and change, right? Australia as an economy uh, is not going to be able to take really dramatic action uh, in terms of regulating artificial intelligence, because if we do, um, all of the companies operating in Australia will go offshore and go to go to different jurisdictions, right? So to do that effectively uh, and to ensure that we get the productivity benefits of artificial intelligence, we have to do it in partnership. Alliances are really important uh, in that respect, um, obviously with the US being one of the, um, the primary com- uh, countries that we uh, are engaging with that in that respect, but also a number of like-minded partners. But I would also posit um, and challenge your listeners to think about non-traditional partners as well. I have found the ability um, to make real meaningful progress at the international level on these issues comes from having partnerships that sometimes are a little uncomfortable. Right, So this is partnerships with countries that maybe don't have 100% alignment on our democratic values and our human rights principles, but will come in behind and support the general concepts and principles. Not everybody has the same uh, viewpoint. Um, and so we have to accept the world as it is. And I think, and this is what I mean by Australia uh, being able to punch more above our weight, is that We, unlike the US, can uh, come from our very immediate region, engage with our close partners, whether that's India, Indonesia, Singapore. And if Australia, India, Indonesia and Singapore put forward a proposal uh, in a multilateral forum, whether that's in the context of, for example, the ASEAN plus India, or if it's uh, in uh, the UN context, it will get a much better reception than if something is put forward by the US or by China. I've lived and breathed it both at the ASEAN level and at the UN level. Um, And until you actually see the power of what it is to be Australia and to be Australia separate from the US, not because we're um, disowning the US, but recognising that we actually, it is of benefit to the Australia-US alliance for Australia to be an independent voice in our region. And harnessing that is very powerful. More than 50% of the world is holding an election in 2024. Mm. Um, Mis and disinformation will Gosh, obviously continue to be a terrifying statistic. <laughs> How can we collaboratively combat AI-enabled mis and disinformation in the coming year? I would just love for someone to invent a watermarking technology, but I'm told reliably that that's a little bit of the way off. In Australia, it's by uh, reforming truth and advertising um, uh, legislation. Uh, In other jurisdictions, um, it is ensuring uh, that there is a requirement um, to disclose when artificial intelligence is used, um, and you can place that uh, obligation upon uh, those who are subject to the elections relatively quickly, Um, and it's education of the population. All of these responses are deeply unsatisfactory to me um, and uh, that's why I think in this instance we do need to particularly also be focusing on a technology solution to a technology problem um, whilst ensuring that that is um, put in the context of this is about democratic elections, this is the thing that is at the core of our society and we must protect. You'll be pleased to know then that we are continuing the early work we started on AI in the information environment. You wrote on the export controls on semiconductors in October 2022, just after they were announced, and flagged that they were a historical turning point or tipping point for US-China decoupling. From your perspective, where is the debate at now, a year on, with another round of export controls? 
Um, look, at the time I wrote that article, my editor came back and said to me, do you really want to be that definitive to say that people will look back on uh, the uh, controls that were announced in October 2022 as the point at which uh, US-China tech decoupled? And I said, yes, I'm comfortable with that and I remain comfortable. I think uh, it absolutely is and the trend continues. How does Australia fit into this if it impacts other areas like clean technologies? I don't think decoupling means you can't continue uh, to cooperate um, and that we won't continue to cooperate in areas like clean technology uh, with countries like China. I just think it means um, that we won't be necessarily uh, sharing the technology um, until it's well-developed and commercialised. You recently joined the MyGov Advisory Board. Congratulations. It's led by former New South Wales Minister Victor Dominello, who has also been one of our podcast guests this year. Um, and its role is to advise the Minister for Government Services, Bill Shorten, on improving the MyGov service. Mm. What do you hope to achieve? <laughs> uh, I hope to avoid robo-debt 2.0. Yeah. How can we see technology enable improved engagement between government services and individuals? Oh, look, I think um, both uh, Victor Dominello and Bill Shorten speak about this very passionately. Can you imagine an environment where you could log into MyGov and, um, you know, all of the relevant government services knew that you'd changed your address, you didn't need to lodge it, you know, 50 different times in 50 different places. And there are many countries around the world who have really effective digitised government services. And so this has been done before. And so... You know, I think this is about, again, about reimagining a possible uh, future uh, and then taking uh, incremental steps to see it realised. We've seen a recent focus on a national digital identification. Can countries manage without a digital ID system in a digital era? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think so. Um, I, I think, um, you know, many of the challenges that we saw out of the Medibank, the Latitude uh, Financial or the Optus hacks would have been avoided uh, in terms of the impact on the on uh, Australian population if we had digital identity and you weren't required to hand over your passport, your credit card and your driver's licence every time you wanted to do something. But the reality is we, ha we do have um, uh, all of the elements of digital identity that exist already. So digital identity... Um, for us, there's perhaps a cultural issue we need to, to get over. We need to make sure that we get clear public messaging about the use and access of the, of the information that is collected and make sure we've got really strong and clear protections in place about you know, law enforcement access and these types of things. Uh, and we need to demonstrate that we are um, implementing those protections and respecting those protections. Absolutely. One of the questions we ask regularly uh, of our guests is, what do you do in your downtime to keep sane? And do you have any specific technologies which bring you the most joy? The way that I turn off is by turning off my devices. I love technology. I love the connectivity that it brings. But I think it's also important that we detox and that we have periods of time where we're away from technology. So most weekends I will put my phones and my devices in the drawer um, and I will have at least a 24-hour period where I'm not on the phone. One thing that I really recommend and maybe your listeners can try is having a box uh, on your kitchen table that everyone puts their devices in. Um, and I mean mum, dad and the kids. Uh, it's not selective. Um, and you sit down and have, um, you know, dinner times that are digitally free. So I think that's really important. Um, in terms of the technology that brings me the most joy, I'm teaching myself to play the guitar and I have this amazing app that I uh, am using. Um, so I get a lot of joy out of that. Um, and I'm also uh, chronically dyslexic. So I'm I use a lot of um, technology to assist uh, to assist me things like Grammarly and technology like that, which doesn't necessarily bring me joy, but makes my life a lot easier. Coming up is eyes and ears. 
What have you been reading, listening to or watching lately that might be of interest to our audience? Well, given we're going into Christmas, I thought what I might do um, is just flag some of my favourite novels uh, in this space. So Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon, absolute chunker of a book, but definitely one of the best books. Um, You're I... taking advantage of being the final episode for the year where you assume people have all this time yeah, to read. Yeah, exactly. You? But it's an awesome, awesome book. And it, it has, um, you know, some quite complex cryptography in it, which I am told is actually like factually correct as well, which, you know, I just skipped over those pages. But um, I would also recommend to listeners uh, the Illumini Files. This is a three series um, and it's a graphic fiction um, and really awesome set um, way into the future on a spaceship. Really interesting in terms of the way that humans interact with technology. So I highly recommend that. I would also recommend um, The Code Breakers by Ali Sinclair, which tells the story of the Garage Girls um, who were code breakers during the Second World War in Brisbane. And one that I'm just finishing reading that I highly recommend is called Queen of Codes, which is the secret life of Emily Anderson, Britain's greatest female codebreaker. And she was really um, pivotal within British intelligence through the First, the Second World Wars, um, the Middle East, and is someone who should be a household name, uh, but isn't. So highly recommend uh, that book as well. Excellent recommendations. I want to chat to you, Johanna, about technology contest, and you brought it up as one of your three themes of 2023. We're seeing the concentration of data and computational capacity as a new form of power, geopolitically as well as within industry. What are you most concerned about? I think I'm most concerned about the concentration of power in the hands of uh, people and organisations that uh, are not democratically accountable. Um, now, uh, that might be um, within uh, the context of Australia and our alliance partners, our close allies uh, within industry, or it might be the concentration of this type of power uh, within uh, other governments uh, like China or, you know, Saudi Arabia has uh, just released um, an, an AI model as well. So I think um, for me, it's the concentration of power, the amount of compute power that is required, both in terms of the chips that underpin that, but also the power that is required in order to do that. These are things we can control. So from a, and here I mean in a, um, in a traditional arms control context, right? Most, um, most technology is actually really difficult uh, to control across borders because it is dual use and multi-use. These super, super, super powerful frontier uh, artificial intelligence uh, models, you, you can identify them because of their power pattern. Uh, and we can also uh, track where these chips uh, are being taken and used. In January, OpenAI's ChatGPT reached 100 million monthly active users just two months after launch. It briefly held the record of the fastest growing consumer application in history, beating TikTok's nine months. In November, it was announced that ChatGPT is also used by 2 million developers, including over 90% of Fortune 500 companies. What followed, though, was a chaotic four-day stoush between OpenAI's CEO Sam Altman and the board. Johanna, what can we learn from the Sam Altman saga? My key lesson out of this comes back to what it what it always does for me. It's about governance, right? It's about accountability and it's about saying um, if we're developing uh, these types of tools and we're placing this amount of power uh, ultimately in the boards of private companies, um, is that how we want uh, the technology that will shape our future to continue to be governed? And certainly for me, the answer is no. Um, we need to have uh, much more uh, oversight 
uh, of the way uh, that these organisations that will be shaping our future are being run. And it's part of the trend that we've really seen um, over 2023. That is, um, we need to hold these companies uh, to account uh, much more um, than we have previously. We're going to go to a segment, Emerging Tech for Emerging Leaders. Can you share some new emerging technologies you think up-and-coming leaders should know about? Actually, I think for emerging leaders, uh, the most important thing is to recognise that the technology is going to change so fast. It's not about um, choosing a technology that you're going to specialise in because that technology will be out of date before you become transitioned from an emerging leader to a leader. But it's about providing yourself with a strategic framework to be able to think about these technologies. And that strategic framework doesn't necessarily necessarily have to change depending on what those emerging uh, technologies are. So it's building that ability to critique, to ask questions, to second guess, to listen to your gut. As an emerging uh, leader in this field, make sure when you're engaging and you're applying that strategic framework which you're building that you actually have an understanding of the impact and that usually means getting out and using the tech and understanding what the tech actually does and f- not enough people do that. This is the final episode for 2023 and with all that's happened in tech this year including what we've just touched on there's plenty to consider for the coming year. What are you expecting or looking forward to in 2024? I am really looking forward to in 2024 the continued dominance of the conversation around technology in the general public debate. This is a real shift uh, in 2023. The fact that, you know, I'm going on mainstream radio um, and we're having these conversations in in podcasts like your own, but also that it's really permeating the public conversation. And that to me is really exciting. So how do we move towards uh, implementation of some of these really significant changes uh, that we're seeing both domestically and globally? Yeah, I often start my presentations with a a recount of how recent many of our consumer technology applications actually are. You know, they're they're basically teenagers. Um, And for anyone that's got a teenager, you know, thinking about their level of maturity and sophistication, we, we start to understand why perhaps they need more guidance in board governance. In our final segment called Need to Know, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or would have been great to cover? Oh, no, you've been very comprehensive. What a great set of questions. Thank you. Um, look, I think um, the final thing I would I would leave listeners with is one of the things that we have touched on, and that is that technology is made by humans. And, you know, when we're talking about 2024, I think it really is incumbent on all of us to think about what is the future that we want to be creating for others and to wake up to the agency that we have as individuals, as public servants, as um, as people who work for big companies, that actually we can agitate for things to be done differently and for technology to be made differently. And that's incredibly powerful. And we've seen really um, significant steps uh, in that respect. Um, you know, we wouldn't have had the response that government has on cybersecurity if the Australian population population hadn't put their foot down and said, no, we will not continue to have Medibank and and, uh, Optus. These things are not acceptable. So there is a lot of power in recognising that agency. And so I really encourage people to think more uh, actively about what future it is that they want to shape. And so it's really to sort of act as ambassadors, get out there, help um, help others to see that technology uh, is something that we can shape and that we should be actively shaping. Johanna, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Technology and Security. I've been your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Tech Program at the United States Studies Centre based at the University of Sydney. 
If there was a moment you enjoyed today or a question you have about the show, feel free to tweet me at M-I-A-H underscore H-E or send an email to the address in the show notes. You can find out more about the work we do on our website, also linked in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you soon.